the UK, broadcasting around the world. Around the world. You're listening to the Mike Drop Club, hosted by Douglas Hamandiche. Message received. Message received. You do not need to know what you need. What you need. Just engage with the podcast feed. Just engage with the podcast feed. Providing weekly insights into cool stuff we've read, saw, did, or heard about what made us say, wow, eureka, damn, nothing is off limits. If it motivates and inspires you to reach your goals, then it shall be discussed. Featuring guest interviews from high performers and people of influence and weekly awards for the best mic drop moment. This podcast is guaranteed to leave you pumped up for the week ahead. Don't just live life. Make life boom. That's right, people. How you guys doing out there? Welcome to another episode of the Mic Drop Club with your host, Douglas Hammond D. Today is not an ordinary day. Today I'm going to cover a topic that's been very close to my heart when it comes to digital transformation. And that is all about the user experience. Taking a look at the behavioral changes that individual needs to reconcile, come to terms with when it comes to embracing technology. And as the music and as the intro would get, allude to, this is an international affair. So we'd like to share experiences with people all across the globe. So today I'm honored to have Dr. Giles Morrison in the house to talk to you guys, to share a debate, a discussion, an interactive discussion all around clinical user experiences and around the health and digital transformation landscape. So with no further ado, Dr. Giles Morrison, how are you doing? Welcome. Hello. Um, thank you. Uh, it's a real pleasure to, to be here, Douglas. I think what you're doing here with the mic drop is, is, is great. And it's my pleasure to actually be a part of, of this movement. Thank you. No, brilliant. Brilliant. In fact, the, the power of the whole LinkedIn has been phenomenal. It's, it is a journey that keeps on giving. Literally, I'm connecting and having real insightful conversations with people all across the globe, particularly around digital transformation, um, motivation, inspiration, all that kind of stuff, because I am a firm believer that technology is an enabler, ultimately designed yes. to liberate us from a process that was deemed antiquated, whether that's paper or whether that is... um just based upon the way we go about doing things in, in the not the most productive way. You know, mm. I was challenged at a very young age to um, embrace um, critical thinking. So mm. I always try to unpick things, you know, break things, find out what each part does and then reassemble in a far more <laughs> efficient way. My parents will argue against that. Obviously the toys I broke <laughs> as a kid. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so, so Giles, so Giles, it's all about you. This is this is all about um, you taking over the show, really, and let's have a conversation from a German perspective. So, in terms of the user experience in around health, what's that journey been like, and how did you get in in that field in the first place? Yeah, so um, actually, I started out in London. I'm from East London, Tower Hamlets, born and raised, and for a long time, I was actually thinking I would go into art or writing, maybe be an illustrator when I was a young child. And I realized that actually people tend to become famous as artists, at least after they're dead. So that doesn't sound like the most useful way to make, make money when I'm alive. <laughs> okay. And then I thought going towards IT and then the IT teacher said, Giles, there won't be any jobs, which obviously was the biggest sort of nonsense. But at the time, um, in the, you know, just turn of the millennium, 
people weren't always aware of just how big a move to well, actually, I think they did know the ITT two were probably just a bit stupid, but mm. anyway, <laughs> I was heavily discouraged from going into it. Mm. And then I thought, well, what am I going to do with my life? I was about 14 at the time. I thought, let's go into medicine. Let's go and be a doctor. And um, it's a great opportunity to still use my my desire, my need to help people. Yes. I'm very much a person that sees how can I make the lives of someone else better. But then also I was very interested in science and particularly biology. How can I bring that all together in a career where I might be able to travel, can still have a good salary? And then, you know, working as a doctor just came to me. First doctor yeah. in the family, which was really um, a wonderful it's moment. Actually, graduating. Thank you. Thank you. And then, um, but I realized that medicine wasn't quite cutting it for me. I worked as a doctor for three years. And very quickly in my first year, I realized that the work-life balance, the ability to actually really bring change in people's lives. Like obviously, if you save someone's life, they've just been, you know, their heart stopped. You bring, you revive them, you know, help bring babies into the world. You deal with someone who was near the brink of death, but you've been able to treat them and get them better. This is a wonderful thing. And I was honored to work as a doctor, but I thought there's so much more about the problems that I simply couldn't solve mm. as a doctor that I realized I need to do something a little bit different. And I still had so much interest in IT and in graphic design, visual design, that when I realized that I could do something in digital health, you know, I jumped at the chance. At the time, I had never heard of user experience or UX for short. Mm. But since September of 2014, I've been carving out a career now in what I have defined as clinical UX. So if UX is about the design um, and the experiences that people have with anything that's been designed, healthcare UX would be about the experiences people have with healthcare technology and services. And clinical UX would look at the experiences clinicians and patients have with healthcare technology and services. So that's my, been my niche. After working as a doctor for three years, looking at how do we make healthcare technology and services um, easy to use, accessible, and even fun, if not at least satisfying. Exactly. And yeah, so my, my career over the last um, nearly six years now to this point um, has taken me now to, to Germany. And I have been able to work on projects internationally. And I would say the problems that I'm still seeing here in, in Germany are ones that you would find in most of the so-called developed world. You know, there's still health inequalities that are uh, prevalent because of race there's, and socioeconomic status. Mm -hmm. So there's still um, a lot of work that needs to be done in this regard. I think even just the application of user experience in healthcare is really, really low. Like it's just poorly understood. Exactly. So when you think about, um, you want to use Netflix or you want to play a computer game, or you want to transfer money using your banking app, most of the time you're going to have a great experience as in like, you should be able to use it, interact with it, whether you're blind or deaf. Mm. So disability is necessarily holding you back, you know, being elderly shouldn't stop you from using Netflix, transferring money from one bank account to another on a mobile phone. You know, again, you see elderly people even playing Fortnite and all these other modern computer games. Mm. But there's something about using an app to improve your health consistently, like as a mainstream thing, mm. is we're still not there. There's loads of health apps on the market, and many of them are actually quite quite poor in their design and worse can actually harm your health. I'm sure yourself Douglas, you've probably heard about, um, you know, apps specifically in the mental health space, which you've got um, experience with um, from your career. 
You know, there's loads of apps trying to say, use this app, it's going to cure you of, of anxiety, of depression. And they've never been validated. They don't have, you know, clinicians who have used them to say that, yes, this is correct. This is something that we can stand by as an appropriate tool to use. Yeah. And this is a big problem. We're not taking the design of technology that is user-centered seriously. We're not, we're not considering the actual different people who are affected by healthcare technology and services from a digital perspective, we're not taking it seriously. Yeah. And until we do that, we're going to continue spending billions, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars on digital solutions in healthcare that are making money but not changing lives. On that note, I salute you for being able to articulate that um, challenge that we have in the health space. Unlike mm. any other sector, um, I, I, I believe health is one whereby the user experience has been completely neglected and yes. to its, to its um, demise as a um, chief clinical information officer, digital transformation lead, whatever um, role I'm, I'm doing at the time, I can, I, can test, I can testify to that whole mindset and I'll put it down to three things like the triple C. In terms of like when we um, implement technology within the health space, um, very often the design of the solution is done in a very sterile environment, very clinically free environment. Yeah. It's not in the clinical environment. I'm basically trying to say it's in a, it's an office yeah. environment, yeah. right? Away from it's the patients. It's in a lab. Yeah, that, that's right. Yeah. It's in a lab. Let's be clear. It's in a lab. And in that lab environment, they, 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 they set up um, different scenarios, different use cases on how it can be used within practice. But um, when the project is initiated, there's not enough clinical involvement. So when I say triple C, mm. I always look at things like, such as conscious. They're like, I don't believe technology companies as a whole are very conscious and are awake to their needs of the people using their solutions. That's right. right. That's right. And they don't have um, contact enough with those clinicians and those patients who have, that have to engage with their solution. Mm -hmm. And because they are poor contact, um, was it, was it <laughs> conscious contact? Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. So because those two, two fields are very much lacking. Yeah. Um, and also concrete. So the last C is concrete. So you can have mm -hmm. contact, i.e. superficial, and I've seen many times whereby we get a clinician involved in a project. Yeah. And once you've rolled out a module, whatever the case may be, they go about their business. <laughs> their yeah. services are no longer required. Is that the same experience that you're um, having in Germany in, in your experience? In Germany, in the UK, in the US, in South Africa, in South America, it doesn't matter. This happens time and time again. And it's, it's really disappointing because what you've done is you've you said to someone, what would you love to have? And they've given you a shopping list of what they want, mm. okay? But they're not doing the shopping themselves, you know? They don't even know how much it's going to cost. What is the, you know, how heavy it's going to be. They don't even know how you're supposed to transport this shopping back to them. Mm. All they're saying to you is what they want. You know, people tend to be experts on what they want, but they're not experts on what they need. And this is the biggest problem of just getting a consultant or some other doctor 
to come on board. And this is the thing, it's, it's even this view that a consultant or a doctor is enough to create a solution for nurses, for <laughs> physiotherapists, for the general public. Like, why is it just seeing these very specific professional is in isolation going to be enough? So that's the first problem. And then you're not really trying to test out the solutions with them once you've come up with an idea. You're assuming that because you've consulted them and they've given you what they want, a list of you know requests, rather than you fully evaluating what they need, you then just give it to them. And like, well, this is what you said you wanted. Wonderful. And the truth is you wouldn't do this in any other context. Like if you go to McDonald's, and you say you want a happy meal, mm. you know, you know what a happy meal is going to entail. There's a wonderful picture when you go into the place that shows you even the toy that you're going to get this mm. week. Mm. But if you go into McDonald's and say, I want a piece of jerk chicken and rice and peas, maybe a slice of, you know, side of coleslaw, of course they're not going to give you exactly what you want. Why? Because that's not what they've got expertise in. You can make your requests, mm. but if you're not going to someone who even knows how to deliver what you want mm. because they truly understand you, you will have a mistake. That's why I use that as an example. If you went into a Caribbean restaurant and asked for that, even if it wasn't on the menu, you should already believe that they could help you. So some of that dialogue has helped. So this is a situation where you as a clinician goes to a digital healthcare provider who's going to create a digital solution and they give you something that, you know, they should have some idea because they've got clinicians on their team. Yeah. But what's missing then is who is actually ensuring that we're really giving what's needed? Like anybody can make a website for doctors and that, that website is made by doctors themselves. Yeah. It's how are you testing out that the solution really satisfies a need? This is what UX is about. It's about, and, and this whole concept of design thinking is about understanding how can we have a mindset and a process mm -hmm. that ensures that we provide the best solution, the right solution to the right problem? Yeah. And this is a process. It's not, it's not a quick thing. You know, it doesn't just come from speaking to one person and then just telling you what they want. It's even understanding what their needs are. And then through exploration, through testing, through ideation, through creating and being, you know, really inspired by what's already around you, then you come up with potential solutions that once tested and have been iterated deliver on needs. Exactly. I, I totally agree with you there. Um, too often we get the token clinician on board to be the safety officer, to sign off parts of the project, not understanding the needs of the clinician themselves because the clinicians have to maintain a registration. And I've seen some software companies where you have retired clinicians offering real-time, up-to-date solutions when they're so yeah. far removed to what's happening at the coalface, then there's also yeah. challenges in the sense of, okay, if you want a clinician to, be, to maintain their registration and also provide value in your software company, there has to be that flexion. There has to be that flexibility to understand that by, by enabling this person, this individual, to, to straddle the two parts, they're going to need time. They're going to need a bit more supervision than normal because yes. the clinical environment is not like any other environment on earth. In any other, and you can um, you can work in technology and go across different companies in technology. They're pretty much the same. Mm -hmm. The questions you're going to ask: Where are the toilets? What time's your break? Where's my desk? It's yeah. pretty much the yeah. same. But any clinician, whether you work in mental health, the acute sector, 
we're dealing with human beings. We're dealing with issues yeah. that sometimes we're wrestling to, yes. to, to reconcile when we're back in the office and then drawing um, flow diagrams and, and explaining why software best works in this way. And um, I don't think mm. there's that recognition. There's, 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 sometimes there's that competition whereby um, non-clinicians might feel wrongfully so that their skills are being undermined when a clinician walks into the room. And then it's mm. that competitive nature where you don't know coding, right? You just know how to um, treat um, patients. But I think yeah. there needs to be a lot more harmony in it and respect for both each other's skill sets. And you yes. come together with a unified view to help somebody mm -hmm. address a need. Yes. No, um, that, yes. that, that, that's me going on, on a soapbox. So I've, I've, said, I've seen it so many times. So the user experience um, in the UK, uh, I, I know you know Tower Hamlets, but East London and all yeah. that. Yeah, um, yeah. Where the way we measure quality in health is normally measured on three metrics, broad metrics, yeah? Patient safety first, um, productivity and efficiency, they're normally combined, yeah? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then user experience mm -hmm. yeah but in your experience have you seen um software companies really sincerely go after user feedback uh yes in healthcare not enough mm. definitely not enough i find that in general we do see many companies take this seriously like um a good example would be any 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 game producing company worth its salt will take it seriously. Yeah. In fact, there has been games that have literally been made from feedback. Like it's not just that a game was iterated and made better, but I mean a new game that's come out is literally from direct feedback from a previous game. I've seen this happen. Yeah. When you look at healthcare, the main time that you perhaps get feedback, specifically looking at user experience involving technology. Yeah. So we're saying that not just can we get feedback on whether we have treated your cancer very well, like the NHS and most hospitals, they're quite good in trying to get patient experience feedback. Mm -hmm. But when we're talking about UX feedback on a digital product, it's terrible. When you see it being done well, it's a few um, startups who in order to get investment, they're incentivized to get feedback from their users. So they have wonderful quotes that they can present to investors. Yeah. And of course, there are also some that do take it a little bit more um, uh, seriously that, you know, you, you want to get true sentiment from your users. Yeah. So it really does help you with your quality improvement of your product. But for sure, it's not, it's not common practice, it's not standard practice. Yeah. It's not, it's not the norm at the moment, unfortunately. Yeah. And I, I, again, um, there's a lot of synergy here because I, I totally agree. And when they do sometimes ask for feedback, it is steered. Then they're not prepared for the harsh feedback. So you have a questionnaire yeah. that, that um, Socratically steers people to a conclusion that the software is still good. <laughs> yes. Yes. You know? That's right. That's right. <laughs> I, I think what's really bad with this, I've, I've had examples from some of my colleagues who've started out in healthcare, in healthcare UX, and they've done research for a client, the client themselves and the main contact is a consultant physician. Okay. And so you've, you've literally got recordings from patients who are saying that this is a great idea, but it doesn't work for me. 
Like yeah. I'm not going to use it. Mm. I don't want it. Like they've literally said those words. Yes. And then the clinician has literally said, I don't believe it. Like, as in like, I literally don't believe it. I don't accept this video recording that you're showing to me. And this is a really terrible bias. The fact that, you know, even in the face of blatant evidence, you are refusing to accept the fact. That's what you call a delusion. That's actually like a recognized medical symptom of someone who is suffering illness right now. We were talking about, you know, supposed to be a sane, competent clinician who's like, you know what? I don't believe the evidence that you're presenting to me. And in any other context, you would call this out as absolute insanity. Like if you are a doctor and you see a patient and, you know, they've got a knife in their back and they're not breathing and they're bleeding out. And then you say, this patient is absolutely fine. If anybody was to say that, you would say that they're insane. And to me, that's the exact same thing that's happening in digital health. You're, You're being told and you're being seen clear evidence of a problem right? Feedback coming saying this is not acceptable. And you're saying, you know what? It's absolutely fine. And the reason behind this is an agenda. Someone's got an agenda that they just want to have what they believe is right to just happen Mm. or worse. They're going to get paid a lot of money to allow this incompetence, this poor level of quality to exist. Like we've got to call it out for what it is that this happens too often. Mm. You know, this belief that we can just allow bad things to exist. Yeah. Yeah, and, and it's prevalent within health. Unlike, say, for example, the, the motor industry, cars in the thousands can be recalled. In the thousands. Toyota has no problem in recalling thousands of its vehicles. Ford, same thing. Renault, the same thing. BMW, the same thing. When a fault is found within um, a vehicle, they can recall that. Even if you look at your domestic appliances, such as your Zanussi, your hot, what's it, hot points, mm-hmm. They recall washing yeah, machines yeah. all the time, you know, at yeah, their own yeah, cost, yeah. you know, and, and it does go into the millions. However, within software, what tends to happen is workarounds. Yes. That, that's what tends to happen. Do you know what? Okay. We understand we're going to fix it in another release in the next couple of years, but in the change meantime, request. yeah, change request. In the meantime, <laughs> what we do suggest is you work in this um, <laughs> protected way to make the system yes. fit your workflow. That in yes. itself introduces clinical risks. And as a clinical safety yeah. officer, I really, really drum home this message that it is far safer for clinical processes to support at the NHS or any health organization, redefine the clinical processes. In fact, it should be part of the project plan whereby... Yeah. Because as you cannot say to a clinician, you will know exactly how to change your policies and procedures in line with a new piece of technology. They're not a technology yeah. company. Technology companies know the ramifications and the, the breadth and depth of their software when it's installed. No clinician yes. will know that. So That's therefore, right. therefore, there needs so, so there's so many times a sub piece of software is installed, but it's not supported by the right updated protocol. So the yes, person on the yes. ground knows how to use it just in the sense of they were shown in, in, a, in, a, in a quick training session, this is what you do. But the rationale behind it is gone. So they decide, obviously, we cut corners sometimes to, to meet the needs of the patient. But that corner that you cut, that, that pick list that you didn't select, 
can have a knock-on effect later down the line, upstream, downstream, wherever it is, where that data is required by another clinician to make an informed decision regarding the care. So it's it's, it's yeah. very, very, very um, important that we we address it. And I'm glad that you are highlighting it because um, quality is always based upon those three metrics. User experience is one of them. The patient yes. experience and the clinical experience all the time. But yeah, I, I don't see a lot of sharing of that. What tends to happen is we... A trust will typically ask the software company, can you tell me where else you've installed your software? Yeah. And, that, we- and that's the only measure <laughs> of how good they are. And this, this gives rise to, to, to something that I call um, perceptioning. Okay. So we know what perception is, is something that you see that like your, your perspective, you, your viewpoint of something, but perceptioning is something that I've come up with because it's something that I've observed um, over the years and I never really had a name for it. So perceptioning is the ability of going through a process of, uh, or, or any sort of way of ensuring that a particular perspective is maintained without lying. Hold on. Okay, Hold guys, on. everybody ready? Atomic <laughs> mic drop. Yeah. Yeah. That deserves one of those. You just say that again. Perceptioning. Right. Perceptioning, right? This is a way of allowing a particular perception to exist, to, to, you know, to be persistent mm. without actually lying. And this is really, really dangerous. Like let's, let's take a use case of how this is actually done, right? There is a lie that's being given, for example, that this healthcare technology is definitely going to be able to create a software solution for your hospital that's going to solve X, Y, Z problems, okay? There's this first lie that's been made, okay? And then loads of other people, they don't necessarily say that we can't make the solution. They don't, they don't call out the fact that there's a lie going on here. All that happens, though, is a variety of things that are said and done to allow that lie to persist and for, for things to just become a status quo. So a company will be called in, They'll be given requirements. They'll do the work. They'll deliver on the product. It's not really, you know, what the clinicians want. They're not quite happy with it. They start suffering issues. And you know what? That company goes ahead and makes a product for somebody else. And the hospital has to still use that software for years to come. And it's all been because no one has actually um, said the truth about the situation. They just allowed this perception that this decision that was made was good mm. when it was always a bad decision mm. and it just persists. This is perceptioning. Perception. No, thank you for that. And I, and I shall use that. I shall use that. Um, <laughs> look out for it in a, in a LinkedIn quote. <laughs> Soon. Right now it's important. I think it's very important because unlike sometimes when you're doing something wrong, it's important to stop, stop. And um, reflect without bias and formulate a more objective conclusion regarding software. You know, um, but but the contracts that a lot of health providers and social care providers are, 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 are duped into signing last such a long period of time that they can't afford to be financing two um, pieces of software at the same time. So they end up with this, this mindset whereby it's just good enough. Let's just yes. ride it out. And then the investment that clinicians had have had 
in terms of coming up with workarounds, mm-hmm. yeah, has deemed it more risky to embrace a new piece of technology, even if that new technology will enable them to work in a far more productive, far more efficient, and a far more clinically safe way. It's because somebody, mm-hmm. the teams have invested negatively their time, their energy, their passion in making something work. And they, they'd rather yeah. stick with the devil they know than something that they don't know. And I think that is, that is wrong. And I think we are doing the general public a great disservice whereby yes. we are not enabling them to get better quicker. We are still having yeah. the same issues in terms of um, referrals coming in. Yeah. And um, yeah. in, in, incorrect referrals coming in. Patients staying on wards longer than they should do because yeah. of the, the, the freedom of movement uh, of data isn't as, mm. as, as seamless as it is across different services. Data sharing agreements do come into play here. But outside of that, the technology, I would say, is greatly impacting on our ability. Like when I, I qualified in 2003 as a nurse, mental health nurse, 2003. Mm-hmm. And I, I could quite honestly say all the practices that I was trained in are still in place today. From the ward yeah. round to the handover. <laughs> exactly. Things haven't changed. Yeah. But, exactly. And if you go back to, um, what's that Michael Douglas film, Bird, One Bird Flew Over the Cooker's Nest, 1970 yeah, something. Yeah. Nurse Ratchet is a metaphor for the way patients still are administered medication to this very day on wards despite the yeah. technology. So that something's yes. happening yes. there. And all those pieces of technology were brought in with a use case. Yeah. That went from yeah. as yeah. is to a to be situation. Yeah. Yeah. But they're still working as is. Yes. Yes. And I think a big reason for this, right, is that despite clinicians, um, doctors, nurses, physios, you know, any area of, of professional providing clinical care, they are problem solvers. Okay. They, they're people who, when they throw lemons, they make lemonade, they make lemon meringue pie. They even make the lemon vodka shots. Like they don't mess around. They will find a way, right. To succeed so that patients can have the best that they can, but they also are given really, really rubbish conditions to work within. Mm. You know, you're being told to make that lemonade, make that lemon round pie, make those lemon vodka shots in a kitchen that is dirty, that is small, that is crammed, where you don't have enough um, glasses, shot glasses, you know, the oven is half working, that the conditions that you're having to work within, the constraints that you have as a clinician, even in this, the most souped up of hospitals, is still poor. Mm. And then you throw in these software solutions that are being forced on you, that you're not being included in mm. to design. And it makes it very, very difficult for clinicians to thrive and really do the all that they can to do what's best for their patients. And even in this time of COVID-19, it's completely unacceptable like this is calling for what it is it's absolutely abomination that clinicians don't have PPE Mm. you are literally putting your life on the line to look after a patient who's got an infection that could potentially kill you Mm. you're not a soldier you're a doctor you're a nurse you're a healthcare professional right you should not be dying in the service of trying to treat a patient it's not a war zone Mm. it's a hospital yeah but these are the sort of issues is that you've got really talented, really capable people, but the, uh, 
I would say the, the power structure that's in place is not really doing what's best for both the patients as well as the clinicians that are serving those patients. It's, it's, it's heartbreaking. It's, it is, heartbreaking. it's totally heartbreaking. And I remember providing direct care to a, a young lad who was about to be discharged. And we were looking at um, onward um, referral services for him in the community so he can go and do some, some more therapy. And so I'm, I'm at the best side. This is only a couple of years ago. I'm at the best side. And I don't have the technology for me to find out locally what's available. Yeah. I'm, I'm the clinician there. I understand the role of the clinician is evolving. So technology is supposed to make me more a signposter, a more, yes. uh, a, a more giver of information so that the, the patient, the individual can take better control of their own life, make more informed decisions. So at that yes. point, at that point there, when I'm trying to impact information that this young person can go and, 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 and engage with by themselves in the community, Ooh. I Ooh. was left to drift. I had nothing. This is what yeah. happened. The, um, the young chap's mother came and she had Google <laughs> on her mobile phone. <laughs> yep. And she told me what services were available in the community for this young chap. She yeah. told, she told me, the mother told me. I then yeah. took that information and I wrote it. Yeah. And left it in the nursing office, the number of the organization. Yeah. And the name yeah. and the number of the organization. So other nurses, Ooh. if they're in the same situation, they know there's a service out there that provides this therapy out there. Ooh. But I'm, I'm, I'm the one that done the training. You know, it's, it's such a yeah. role reversal when a patient is coming to hospital with better technology than the care provider. <laughs> it's, it's yeah. The irony in yeah. that. How does that happen? Yeah, it's, and, it's, and it's ultimately happened because, as highlighted before, there's problems to be solved. The clinicians are problem solvers, but so are parents. Like parents, particularly mothers, man, they are serious problem solvers. If their child has got a problem, they're going to make sure that that child gets better and they will put their life on the line to do so. And, um, and this is the problem is that, you know, as much as we should have people take responsibility for their care themselves at the moment, the current way the healthcare is provided is in a very maternal, parental, paternal type of way that you must go to a doctor or another sort of experienced senior healthcare professional in any discipline in order to get the healthcare knowledge mm. and treatment that you need on a routine basis, mm. you know, there's this expectation that if you need a prescription for a cough, you must see a doctor first rather than, for example, going to a pharmacist who could perhaps have enough minimal training to listen with, you know, a stethoscope, you know, find out, take a simple history and actually give the medication themselves, a pharmacist doing that. Like this is the sort of ways we could be moving forward. Mm. We could even be moving even ahead of that and being like, well, you've got a history of having recurrent infections. You've got this underlying disease. You've put this information into a clinical, you know, verified um, digital app. That then triggers an automatic digital prescription to give you the treatment that you need. This is where technology can be helping mm. rather than actually having to get the patients and you know, other people in the general public having to step in and, and provide this gap of knowledge that the clinicians can't even provide for themselves. Yeah. Like it's not, again, this is an abomination in my opinion, because it's not like there isn't money in digital health. Like this is a multi-billion dollar business. Like 
seriously multi-billion dollar business, the hundreds of billions. Serious money can be made here, but the way the money is being diverted is not ultimately looking at how do we make the health and well-being of the general public better? That's what should be your, your, your main mindset. Like, what can I do to learn about the situations people are having so I can really help them? Mm, mm. Yeah, that's so true. And the coronavirus, I guess, has brought that to the table. How brutally, yes. <laughs> how brutally um, frank and, and honest your, your appraisal is because you know right now across the globe, Clinicians have been supported by local heroes. They're the ones that understand the, the infrastructure, the, the conditions on the ground in the communities. They're the ones knocking on the door, enabling people to have access to food, despite, you know, the, um, the, the distance they have to keep and all of that kind of stuff, the, the, those, yeah. um, those um, restrictions. However, it's people on the ground who are not clinicians that are enabling their health care, particularly in the UK, to even survive. And reach out yes. to lots of people. And why is that? Mm. Because you've got years of lack of investment. And when they do invest, they invest in the wrong way. It should be yeah. um, incumbent on any software house to iterate their software in a timely way. Iterate in a, in a timely mm. way. Apple do it all the time. You know, it almost yeah. compels you. You know, you've got to update your software because, you know, a security breach um, has been um, identified, whatever, this patch was sorted out boom, your way. Yeah. But yeah. in health, you know, they get away with, again, repeating with, okay, we're going to put that in the next release in the next couple of years or 18 months. <laughs> and um, until then, you know, you work out what's, what's best and um, we'll find a solution for you in, in due course. That is not, that is not, and they're making enough money to change. That's the yeah. whole thing. They're yeah. making a lot yeah. of money. It's not as if they, they have to really invest. Building technology has never been cheaper. It's yeah, never, right. ever been cheaper. The things that are expensive, we know, is like building um, HS2, um, trains, trains, our new train lines, yes. new cities. These are costs that re literally remain constant because it requires manpower, engineering, yeah. electricians, all of these big, big, um, big ticket um, um, stuff. But software has never been cheaper <laughs> to produce. Yeah, no, you're right. You're right. You're right. But the costs are still skyrocketing. People asking yeah. for, do you know what, a simple solution, but they're expecting the trust to part with six figures. Yeah. How? It's because they're looking at their pension rather than the value to patients. Yeah. Yeah. Needs, that's it. Need some sense, need more sincerity out there. I think that's what needs mm. to happen. We need a lot more sincerity. So, you know, this, this is a very passionate debate, as you can tell from, <laughs> for me and Giles as we were talking about yeah. this because we really feel passionately about improving the lives and experiences of patients and we our job is to make it to make our job redundant our job is to make sure the patient doesn't need that's us right. that's our that's job right. you know for the second we engage with them we are literally turkeys voting for Christmas we don't want patients to be reliant on us you know but the technology right. is supporting a, a mindset that keeps them reliant on us and us mm -hmm. on them, you know? Yes. Yeah. Because for me to do my job, I need to be hand and side by side with the patient to really find out yes. what's happening, to get those blood pressure mm. readings into context. I have to be literally physically next to you the whole day to see how it's yeah. going up and down. Oh, instead of you having physical health monitoring apps and all that kind of stuff, that's taking that stuff 
in a way that is seamless. Because I know, I was, I was saying this to my colleague the other day, if you take my blood pressure at, at any given point in time, depending on the environment, it'll go up or down. If you put my, if you do right. my blood pressure when I'm in the dentist chair, it's going to shoot. It's going to shoot. So to get the contextual um, blood pressure reading, you've got to have something that's monitoring me seamlessly without me even knowing. Then we can monitor yeah. trends and all of that kind of stuff. We're still not even there yet. No, we're not. No, we're not. And you raise a really good point of the fact that we have become very, very good and sophisticated at collecting data, mm. but data out of context. Data out of context is useless. It's like yeah. understanding, um, you know, someone tells a joke and you hear the last sentence of it. It's like there wasn't actually an amazing, great joke. But unless you heard it from beginning to end, it's a terrible joke. Yeah, yeah. Only because of context. Like there's a bit of it that you haven't got all of the information. And this happens time and again in healthcare. There's this always, for example, even like, oh, AI can do all this wonderful stuff when we've got all this big data. And it's like, have you really gone through a design thinking process? Have you really looked from a people-centered design process? What is the real problem that someone has? So they can identify the right solution to it. And it always comes back to this, that people are not being driven by necessarily, you know, what is the real problems that are people having? And then finding solutions to that is too much about profits. Mm. It's too much about perceptioning. Yeah, perceptioning is a way to get. Yeah. Maintaining your, too much about maintaining your pension. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think you're right. And AI is the one, one of the bastions, one of the, the, the hurdles humanity has to come to terms with. All of humanity has to come to terms with, with it. And it's one of those ones where, but I feel, and I've had a conversation with some of my um, peers about this before. We have, you, mankind has the opportunity to improve on how it treats each other, you know, based upon race, ability, disabilities, you know, genders, all of that. It has the ability through AI to completely yeah. revolutionize um, and get rid of racism, sexism. It has that ability. However, yes. what you find is in AI conversations, they're not having conversations about race. They assume That's it right. does not exist. Only when enough people cry that if I'm typing black man in Google, they want to do something about it. But inherently yeah. the people doing the coding that create the AI because maybe stereotypically they're introverted. They're not worldly people. They don't use, yes. they don't have that experience of Africa, Asia. Or female. even people from Africa or from the Caribbean. Like you will have obviously African and Caribbean developers, but specifically time and time again, working on these projects. Is it people that are truly diverse? It isn't. Exactly. Exactly. And there needs to be, I think, controls in place right now to ensure that when AI really kicks off, because I think we're, we're still at the, the launch launch phase of AI. But yes, when, I agree. When we, when we get to the point where by that data means something, without these um, controls in place to make sure that there's Ooh. no bias put in. Because yeah. our point of AI is to remove bias. And if yeah. we know as human beings, we have an unconscious bias anyway. We do. Yes. We have it. AI is not supposed to have it. Yeah. That's the whole point. But we're finding that AI still has the bias because it's still essentially being coded by human beings. So we're, right. we're just putting, we're putting forward into the future the same issues that we had pre 
AI. So I, I'm really passionate about, you know what, anyone with a voice, anyone with a platform really needs to start exploring AI, you know, to ensure that um, conversations come about whereby it is embraced for what is, for what it should be, which is um, a savior for humanity, a true liberator, because if yeah. AI should be able to create new ways of working that will actually free up your time to spend more quality time, not to lock up more people <laughs> because of based upon, <laughs> uh, based upon people's grandparents' stories, they told their grandchild that they put in code, you know, to, to, to know that this person's Ooh. a threat, you know, that, yeah. that, that cannot be the case. <laughs> Mm, mm, mm. So, uh, we could talk all day, but you know what? I was going to ask you again. <laughs> you do so much. And I, I, as I look on your profile, I, I have to salute you. Out of all of this Thank stuff, you. doctor, doing behavioral change, supporting clinicians, and um, also take a look at the patient experience as well. You also do guest speaking, international speaker. Yeah? Yes, yes. How did you, how did you get into that? So, my first um, international speaking opportunity came from um, a good friend of mine, Theo Saul. So he's um, a conference organizer based in South Africa. He does a lot of conferences around UX and um, Java and PHP, things like that uh, for developers. Okay. And he reached out to me. I feel like it was in August of 2016. He reached out to me. He's like, Giles, would you be interested in being a part of a healthcare UX conference in a couple of years from now? It's like, yeah, sure, I'll be interested. I have no idea what I'm going to be doing in a couple of years, but yeah, of course. And so I then asked him, you know, are you doing any other conferences? And he mm. said, yes, I've got one happening in South Africa in November. And it says, do you have any speaking slots still available? And he said, yeah, you know, we, we do have one left. So I thought, all right, then this is a time where, you know, cause I'm just starting out. I thought I'll buy my own ticket, but he'll find accommodation and stuff for me. And um, I got there. He gave me a keynote speaking slot, which was incredible. Yeah, for the first day, I opened the conference. With a great talk, you know, um, looking at user experience, um, specifically in the in the confines of healthcare. It was a, a more general UX, so applying UX to any industry conference. But I focused on a, on a healthcare perspective and my journey in getting into UX, and that that was wonderful. And, and since um, November 2016. I've not looked back since. I, I now continue to do conferences sometimes in South Africa, in the United Kingdom, Netherlands, you know, here in Germany and, and other parts of the world. And I think it's important to speak at conferences. Obviously, it's nice to travel around the world, but it's being able to share knowledge. You know, as they say, knowledge is power. And there is a unique power that comes from understanding what UX can actually do in healthcare. And so I, I do take pride in being part of the solution that we need in the world, which is getting more healthcare professionals as well as designers working together to improve healthcare UX. Brilliant. You know, and there's an increasing number of um, healthcare professionals now who are looking at how can I learn about UX so that I can have a dual role as a clinician, particularly as a doctor, a nurse and a physiotherapist. I tend to come across, how can I continue working as a clinician in those areas? and work in digital health, help with the research and the design of new digital solutions. I'm glad to be a part of, of a movement that can, can bring about that change. So I do that through the Clinical UX Association, CUXA. So you'll find out more information from clinicalux.org. Brilliant, brilliant. And, 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 and also, if you want to get hold of 
I'm Dr. Giles Morrison. You know, I'm sure he'll share his information in the show notes as well. So yeah, of course. Yeah. So we yeah, are- just check me out, drgilesmorrison.com. You can find me as well, Dr. Giles Morrison on, on LinkedIn. You can find me on Twitter. And um, yeah, I'm happy to hear from you. Yeah, let's continue to engage with this conversation. And anyone that's heard the conversation, if you feel passionate enough, if the conversation moved you or compelled you to get off your seat or say, oh, these guys are talking rubbish. I want my say in this. <laughs> Fine, come on, let's have this Let's have this, this, this debate. Because what we try and do here, as Dr. Giles quite rightfully said, is move things forward. We're here to provide value. We want to really empower the patient. And we want to really vote yeah. for ourselves out of a job and do something more exciting, you know. But yes. however, whilst there's a need for us, let's make sure that we fulfill that need in the most productive and most efficient way possible. So that is yes. improving the quality of care, you know, not just productivity, yeah. efficiency. User experience is, is a very essential part of that um, triangle piece, the holy trinity yeah. to improve quality, yeah? Yeah. Giles, yeah. Thank you very much for being on the Mic Drop Club. We'll catch up soon. We'll catch up soon. Definitely. It's been a pleasure. Fantastic. Take care. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to check out micdropclub.com and get the show notes and useful links. Subscribe to the podcast. Don't just live life. Make life boom. Boom.